everybody, and welcome to From Plum Creek with Love, a Little House on the Prairie podcast. I'm your host, John Hernandez. And here we are with the season two finale. However, before we get to that, when I started season two of this podcast slash beloved TV series, I was somewhere around 1,200 listens. Here we are at the end of season two, and truth, I had to come back and re-record my opening because I woke up this morning, Monday morning, with 4,014 total listens. So a big thank you to everyone who has given From Plum Creek With Love a chance. Again, I started this podcast as a way to fill the time as we were working our way through this pandemic. And of course, as things have changed over time, I still look forward to working and getting these podcasts out there for you to hear. If you laugh, if you cry, if you roll your eyes, fantastic. This podcast has done its job. Again, I will say this at the end of the episode as well, but uh, this is the last podcast for 2021, and I look forward to continuing on with season three in 2022. And so for the final time this year, with that being said, let's get started on today's recap. Today's episode is entitled Going Home and debuted on March 31st, 1976. The episode was written and directed by Michael Landon. It's nighttime at Plum Creek. We begin with a shot from the hayloft slash studio apartment above the barn. It's a quiet evening, except for the frogs. They're chirping quite a bit. We get a shot of a horse in the barn, as well as a baby calf and the mother. And I imagine not that much happens in 1876, 77, 78, 75, 74, whatever year it is in the prairie verse. The birth of this calf actually would seem like some big news. So it comes as a little surprise that this is the first we've heard slash seen of this calf. It's at this time, those frogs, they go silent. And the wind, it starts to pick up and it doesn't seem to be weakening. And that's when the window coverings on the barn blow open, and this gets the horse, the cow, and the calf all worked up. Those are Charles's words, not mine, as we cut to him getting up out of bed, and Caroline sits up and inquires, what's wrong? And well, we get an answer right away when Charles opens the front door. But I do have to wonder, can't they hear the rumbling noise from outside? Again, if there's insulation in that house, how strong is it? And well, they may not be in Kansas anymore, but try telling that to a tornado. Charles tells the family they're going to head to the sod house to seek shelter. And with Carrie in Caroline's arms, she instructs a very reluctant Laura to lead the way, making their way outside. That wind is Picking up, a barrel rolls by, the chicken coop gets knocked over, and there are chickens everywhere seeking shelter. They finally make it into the sod house, and it's been repurposed as a pantry. There are baskets of apples and potatoes, and sacks of I don't know what, but there are plenty of them. Mary and Laura go and comfort themselves down in the corner, and Charles announces that he's heading out once again he has to turn the animals out of the barn. And Charles is doing the best he can, making his way safely there, until a plank of wood comes and whops him upside the head. And he goes down, but it doesn't stop him. He's even bleeding. Once inside the barn, he does manage to free both of the horses and the cow. The calf is a little reluctant, so he does pick it up and places it at the door and tries to rush it along. And that is when a barking jack informs Charles that he is still inside the house. 
And making his way over to Jack, Charles picks him up and they head to the sod house. Our final shot is a bucket of grain being knocked over and all the seeds being blown away. The next day, we begin with an opening shot of a dead chicken. And the camera zooms up to the sod house and we see the path of mayhem. The door opens up and the Ingalls family comes out to assess the scene. And Laura, being the last one out, takes a moment and she looks a little, and well, she looks a little shaken up. Coming down that pathway, I just have to note, Caroline has got some red slippers on. And although they're not made of rubies, they could be made of plush. We cut to an aerial shot looking down into the new skylight of the barn. This one wasn't provided by gunfire. And the cow has returned. But in inspecting the debris from the roof, that's when Charles finds the calf. Darn fool cow. Thought your baby would be safe in here. Darn fool cow. FYI, the rest of the family has walked into the barn. They've witnessed this entire scene. There's also tears. Getting up, Charles instructs Caroline to check on the house because he's about to head to the fields and check on the crop. And we cut to Caroline cleaning out Carrie's bed and Charles then appears in the doorway. And surprise, not surprised, again, the crop is destroyed, again. It's gone, again. The whole field, again. Well, actually, I should put that on pause because there was the one crop that was very successful. It was just a bumper crop that year because that's what led us to transporting explosive oils. At this point, Charles heads out to the barn for some me time and Caroline instructs the girls to continue their work as she heads out to the barn. The horses have been found. That's good. At this moment, Charles begins to ask why? This corn was higher than our head. You know, maybe this time I'll be lucky. And maybe this time I'll win. But no, his crops were once again destroyed. And it's at this time, whoa, Charles starts to question his faith. I thought I was a good person. I'd lived the life the way I thought he wanted me to. Why does he have to punish me? On cue, Caroline responds with, God isn't punishing you. He's testing you. He's testing your strength. And well, looking a little broken, Charles states, I'm not strong anymore. I'm tired. And maybe that's God telling me to go back home to the big woods. I'm just tired. See, doesn't sound like the Charles we have come to know. Leaving the barn and heading all the way into the mill, which FYI, the tornado completely missed Walnut Grove. And apparently news does not spread quicker than scat in Walnut Grove because it doesn't sound like anyone has heard of the tornado that hit. Charles passes by Mr. Edwards without really even saying hello and heads into the office where Mr. Hansen is looking like he's handling the payroll. Looking up, he tells Charles, oh, there's an order that needs to be filled and it needs to get out. And this is when Charles spills the tea about the tornado. Mr. Edwards inquires if the family is all right. We're all right. Charles proceeds to list everything that happened at Plum Creek, the damage to the house, to the barn, the loss of the chickens, to the calf, and the crop. And I just have to point out that Mr. Edwards' response to Charles losing his crop is not nearly as noticeable as when Charles mentions losing the calf. And like I said, Charles looking a little broken, confesses he's not going to be starting over here. I feel like going home. Mr. Edwards, bless him, doesn't hold back. This is your home. You got friends here. We'll help you out. 
Not having it, Charles says, spread the word. There's a farm and a house for sale, and he hopes to get $80 for it. Mr. Hansen says that there is no hurry. However, Charles, he wants it to be done in a hurry. He wants to head out. Turning to leave, Mr. Edwards volunteers to help out, and Charles stops him. I'm leaving. I can't keep promising myself it's going to get better. Mr. Edwards tries to sympathize. He knows how much of a loss it is and how it feels. And once again, Charles, not having it, clearly states, You're my friend, but you don't know how it feels to be me. You still got your crop. He then heads out. We cut to evening time at the Ingalls. Charles is in the barn, mending a wagon wheel, and Laura comes out to visit. It's established that neither one of them ate any of their dinner. That's when Laura, falling into her dad's arms, confesses she doesn't want to move and pleads for them to stay. But it's no good. Laura confesses, I'm older now. I can do more. You said when families pull themselves together, we can do anything. Please, Pa, just try. And holding his half pint, Charles shakes his head and says no. Backing away from her father, Laura is shocked. And she admits they could do anything. But you quit trying. She turns with tears in her eyes and runs back inside the house. And we get a slow zoom out of the barn while Charles continues to work. We cut to daytime, downtown Walnut Grove. Laura is running into the scene towards the church slash school and past Yuli Piatkov's flagpole. Inside, we find Reverend Alden wiping down the seats. So we can safely say today is Sunday. He's staying over at Mrs. Whipple's and he has been informed about everything that happened to the Ingalls and what the current plan is as well. Having a seat, Laura confesses that she feels as though Charles is angry at God because God doesn't like him anymore. She continues by saying, this is supposed to happen to somebody God was mad with. Chiming in, Reverend Alden partially agrees with this sentiment, but then reminds Laura, God doesn't protect good people from misfortune, gives people strength to help get through hard times. That's when Laura further confesses, I don't think Pa has any more strength. She also mentions that for the first time, her dad is looking old. And the two of them further scheme on how to get Charles some strength. And how do they plan to do that? By praying. From there, we cut back to Plum Creek and there is a yellow rimmed wagon showing up at the house. And we are introduced to Matthew and Anna Sims, potential buyers. Caroline greets them, doesn't seem excited about moving, you can tell by her smile, and instructs Matthew that her husband is in the barn and is the person you want to talk with. Inside the barn, niceties are exchanged, a sale is confirmed, and it looks as though the Ingalls are heading back home to Wisconsin. And speaking of home, this is when we find out Matthew and Anna Sims this was their first farm. They also mentioned they had a tornado experience while living there, but compliment the sturdiness of the sod house. How old is that sod house? It's at this time Anna mentions, the more you have, the more you have to lose. And personally, I can't tell if that's throwing shade or not to the Ingalls' lavish little house. The men head out to inspect the property, Anna and Caroline head inside for some tea. Heading up the hillside, Matthew, with Charles listening, talks about the security in a tree 
and how some things never change. And he agrees to purchase the place for the asking price with one condition, that Charles stays and helps with the repairs with all the materials being provided. And a deal is struck. We cut to Mary and Laura heading to school and they run into the Sanderson siblings. Carl and Alicia express their feelings to Laura about the Ingalls moving, and the three of them head out of scene, leaving John Jr. and Mary. They soon close the gap between them, and we need not speculate any longer. This is a flirty relationship, because John Jr. suggests that they skip school, and they go hang out. And, well, Mary's a little unsure. She seems kind of caught up in the moment. Speaking of moments, that's when the bell rings. And, well, John Jr. makes the decision for them both, grabs a hold of Mary's hand, and they run in the opposite direction. We cut to the two of them under a tree, and John Jr. is reading more Lord Byron. When we two parted, However, only a few lines into that poem, John Jr. stops and confesses he doesn't feel like reading today. And sitting on that log, Mary, but you love Lord Byron. And well, according to John Jr., I like Lord Byron, but I love you. And Mary, of course she's speechless. She's been waiting for this moment. And now, here it is. Of course, John Jr. wants to know if there's any mutual feelings. Mary confesses, well, I do have feelings. I'm just not sure if they're the same feelings. And well, according to John Jr., there's only one way to tell if they are the same feelings. And you guessed it, that's to kiss. Mary confesses she's never done that before. And well... John Jr. confesses, neither has he. They both express a little bit of fear, but John Jr. continues, I, I think that's supposed to be there. We just have to try it. From there, the two of them lean in close. And Mary sets the record for the fastest kissed and quickest exit. But she stops short, turns around, and yells out, I love you, John Jr. Sanderson. And she turns around and starts running, but I'm not really sure where. She can't go home because she skipped school. Cut to another cute couple, The Sims. And Matthew is shirtless in bed, and Anna is vigorously rubbing liniment into his back and complaining to Matthew how, by working with Charles over at the house with the repairs, he is acting like a young scamp all over again. Matthew confesses how he has to keep up with Charles. You know, I have to do my fair share. And deja vu, this scene is very similar to the scene in season one's finale, where a shirtless Jim Tyler is having liniment rubbed into his back by Helen Tyler. They were also a very cute couple. Oh, and FYI, it's been 40 years since Matthew and Anna Sims settled at Plum Creek. They reminisce about the sod house and being carried over the threshold. And they laugh. Eventually it subsides and Matthew falls asleep. And we cut to a shot of Anna's face. And it's looking like she's trying to hold back some tears. We cut to late night up in the loft. Mary pulls a Mary by asking Laura if she's awake. Laying in bed, Mary thanks Laura for not telling their ma about skipping class today. Big Sister Mary then follows up with what happened with John Jr. Laura, you kissed each other on the mouth? Her immediate response is, yucky. Big Sister Mary immediately regrets telling Laura. But wait, there's even more, Laura. Big Sister Mary continues with how they both said they loved one another. 
Shocked, Laura states, you better not let Pa find out, or he'll tan John Jr.'s hide. Good night. And I still think it's yucky. Now, I would like to take a moment here, and soft reminder, we're at the end of season two, and Laura has not had one, not two, but three crushes on three different boys. First, there was Johnny Johnson. Next, we had Henry Henderson for the spring dance, and most recently, the scientist, Jason A. And they even had their initials carved into a tree. Albeit, it's not the sweetheart's tree, but still. And two of those were just in this season alone. Laura, when you move on, you really move on. Cut to another day at school. Mary and Laura are now sitting near the back of the room. John Jr. is sitting directly behind Mary and Laura and leans forward and confesses he absolutely has to see Mary alone. Mary confesses that this afternoon she has to hurry home after school. And that's when John Jr. makes the plan to sneak over after dark and hide in the barn and wait for Mary to come out. Mary confesses that she'll head out when she can. They're having dinner with the Sims that evening. P.S. Laura is sitting like a statue, hearing all of this, and her eyes are getting wider by the second. And speaking of that dinner, we cut to Plum Creek. DJ Ingalls is back playing the fiddle, and when he's done, Matthew compliments the music and says, I love the sound of a violin. Asking for another song, Matthew suggests that Laura picks the next song. However, she claims she's tired and heads up to bed. With her sister out of the way, Mary asks to be excused and heads out. Charles apologizes. We're probably not the best company this evening. And Caroline, getting ready to check on Laura, Matthew inquires if he can instead. Sometimes it's easier to tell your problems to a stranger. And up in the loft, Matthew comes across Laura, and he inquires, Did you already say your prayers? That's when Laura confesses she hasn't, because they seem pointless. Because Matthew is here, and they're buying the house, and they're ready to move away. She mentions how herself and her pa are having a little trouble with their faith at the moment. And then this is when Matthew gets a little bit more inquisitive. And after hearing that Laura prayed for her pa to have strength, so that way they didn't have to move to Wisconsin, Matthew calls out that prayer and says, mm, that was more for you to stay here and not for your pa. You prayed for yourself, am I right? And taking actually just a quick moment to consider it, Laura admits, oh, yeah, I see the fault in that. Don't pretend it's for someone else when really it's intended for you. Once this conversation is complete, Matthew instructs Laura, you might want to straighten things out with him. Before he makes his way down that ladder, Laura has one more thing to share. An apology. But Matthew, he isn't naive. He knew that Laura wasn't happy with him and Anna being around. Strangers coming to buy your home? To you? That's the enemy. And while Laura admits, it doesn't feel that way now. Backing down the ladder, Matthew states, give a stranger a chance. If you don't, they're always going to be a stranger. Which is easier advice back in that day. And alone lying in bed, Laura clasps her hands and says her prayers. We cut to the next day, which is a little suspicious because we have no idea what happened between Mary and John Jr. last night. But what we do see is Caroline heading over with the girls to see Mr. Edwards and family. Charles opts to stick around Plum Creek so he can, yes, continue with the repairs. Caroline instructs the girls to, to run along and she'll catch up with them in a moment. Inside the barn, 
We are then informed that the papers are going to be signed tomorrow after church. And it doesn't look as though there's anything Caroline can do. We cut to the Sanderson estate. Grace is outside, pulling water from the well. John Jr. is stockpiling the firewood. Grace escorts Caroline, Carrie, and Laura inside. And as once they are inside, Mary and John Jr. seize the moment and run into the barn. There's no mention about last night. However, John Jr. has a plan to keep Mary in Walnut Grove. Marriage. Yes, marriage. Mary says no without saying no. And John Jr. confesses it was a dumb idea now that he says it out loud. We're so young. Yeah, I remember counting 14 candles on his birthday cake. John Jr. continues, her parents wouldn't allow it anyway. However, Mary does take a moment to state it wasn't a dumb idea. It's at this time Grace calls for John Jr. to bring in some firewood. And John Jr. admits that if Mary and her family move, they'll never see each other again. Mary, if it's meant to be, it will be. There's a kiss on the cheek and she runs outside. We cut to Charles sitting on a log in the dark. Caroline comes out and the two of them start reminiscing about first moving to the area. There's a joke to Harriet Olson's expense and they remind themselves how much Mary and Laura have grown in this area. And getting up off of that log and stepping out, Charles admits to feeling that he's let the family down. It's just like Laura said, I quit this place and I sold it and there's nothing we can do and it's too late. There is a slight pause before Charles admits to his selfish decision because he did not even ask Caroline her feelings about moving away. She confesses, you've been through a lot. And Charles immediately corrects her, we've been through a lot. Charles admits to giving up. Even when Laura said, as long as the family's together, we can do it. And Charles just admits, I didn't listen. It's at this time, Caroline suggests, we could start over here. We'd be where we belong. And doing her best, Rosie the Riveter, Caroline states, we can do it. And asserting herself, Caroline concludes with, if you came to the women folk in this family, we could have told you then. And Charles, well, I don't want any complaints about a dirt floor. They embrace and they head inside to wake up the girls and tell them the news. And from there, we cut over to the hotel. Matthew is up at the window looking out and Anna is in bed. She encourages him to come back to bed, but he can't sleep. He's anxious. He's thinking that the Ingalls family is making the same mistakes that they made 40 years ago. They mention how great the Ingalls girls are, but in thinking about the moving day tomorrow, Anna states, I'm happy living anywhere as long as we are together. We cut to that next day and the Sims are showing up and Charles is coming out of the barn announcing the papers are ready to sign, but he does have one request. And that is if they can stay in the sod house because they've actually decided not to move away from the area. They just need a few days to find a new place. And hearing this news, Matthew and Anna look at one another and small smiles appear on their faces. Matthew admits to not being able to grant that request. Because you see, we're backing out. He mentions how as much as they would love to have the place, it's just simply too much work for himself. And it looks as though both of them made the wrong decision. Charles, of course, has to bring up the supplies to use to fix, repair the house. And Matthew says, you know, a little extra donation to the church will be sufficient. 
You see, we were married in that church. We owe it a little bit. Unable to understand or believe the situation, Charles invites the Sims inside, but they have to turn that invite down. They have a long day of traveling ahead of them, and they don't know where they're going, and I don't know where they've been, but this time tomorrow, Matthew and Anna Sims will be together. As their wagon pulls away, Anna turns around and waves goodbye. Charles waves back, and he turns and runs into the house to share the news. Matthew and Anna, in their wagon, stop at the hilltop and watch as the Ingalls family set about their life. A life they once could have called their own. But Anna reminds Matthew, I will be happy anywhere as long as we're together. There's a loving kiss, a little nuzzle, and the Sims head out on their way. And that's the season two finale. I was hoping it'd be easy to pull some sort of trivia from this episode, but tornadoes are pretty common in Minnesota. And that's according to the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources website. As for how accurate the price of real estate was in Walnut Grove back in the day, so I'll just take their word for it that $80 was a reasonable price. However, other than those two moments, nothing really else stuck out. So let's get to our final review and rating of season two. This episode started with a bang, or more like a twirl, and who doesn't love a twirl? However, after that, the rest of the episode, like the Ingalls yard, was a mess. Our setup for the episode was great, family left in distress, cool, but not cool. And for one of the first times, our father figure, Charles Ingalls, pretty much admits defeat. And he kind of wallows in his own self-pity for most of the episode until all of a sudden he gets up off a log and decides, oh, wait, now that I'm no longer upset and realizing I should have listened to my family, we shouldn't leave Walnut Grove. And then we have big sister Mary, who pretty much steals the rest of the episode with her first relationship little Romeo and Juliet action going on there as well. Not that the Edwards and Ingalls are feuding. And seriously, she was gone in the barn until the next scene. And Laura, after her initial reluctancy to lead everyone out into the tornado, to the sod house, her only other big moment in the episode is when she confronts Charles in the barn about not moving and how they can together as a family, get through it, which is clearly evident. Look at Yuli Pietkov. And then finally, Carolyn, who just seemed like a stock character in this episode. I miss those days where she's giving sass to Harriet Olsen or cutting the infection out of her leg. Also, when Charles is at the Hanson Mill office announcing his move, he makes the request that he doesn't want anyone's help and... And true to everyone's word, we really don't see anyone else throughout the rest of the episode besides Matthew and Anna Sims, who upon their arrival, I almost have to wonder, are they even really there? They conveniently show up just as Charles has decided to sell the house and Laura has returned from praying with Reverend Alden to give Charles some strength. They say Mr. Hansen, an old friend of theirs, had informed them of this news. They mentioned this was their first house, and they also had a similar experience with a tornado, and that they also eventually moved away. And now they're back, and coincidentally, the house and land are for sale again. But then, of course, by the end of the episode, the Sims decide to move on, and the Ingalls get to continue to stay in their little house at Plum Creek in Walnut Grove. So was Matthew and Anna Sims just some sort of ghost to help keep the Ingalls in Walnut Grove? You know, kind of like those ghosts in A Christmas Carol? 
These are the ghosts of Walnut Grove past, present, future. Because again, at no point do we ever see the Sims with any other residents of Walnut Grove. Or maybe they're kind of like angels. Because we did have that whole scene with Matthew and Laura up in the loft talking about, don't we pretend you're praying for someone else when really you're simply praying for yourself. He also concludes that little lesson with Laura to tell her that she should get back to praying so she can straighten it out with him. Remember, back in season one, we had divine intervention when Laura met up with Jonathan up on Jonathan's mountain. And so, well, maybe this time we get a door-to-door -door service with Matthew showing up. It's a strange thought, I know, but it just kind of stayed with me as I watched this episode. So really, we have an episode where Charles, frustrated by Mother Nature, decides to up and move his family without consulting them, and then, psych, decides not to move. Oh, by the way, psych, that's another one of those old-time words. Oh, and then a quick mention about our stunt animals. At least I hope they were stunt animals. And the episode did seem a little put together. I mean, albeit, we wouldn't have got Mary's love story if it wasn't for the fact that Charles was deciding to move because the tornado destroyed the crop. If anything, maybe this season two finale is supposed to leave us with this cliffhanger of John Jr. Sanderson and Mary Ingalls and their budding relationship. But it's also giving us our final little house moment as well, which goes to Charles Ingalls who after having damage done to his house, his barn, having dead chickens, a dead calf, and losing his entire crop, admitting that he's tired. Looking back at all the episodes in season two and realizing what Charles had done for everyone in each of those episodes and how eventually there was that silver lining. And this looks like, I guess, one of those first times that we see Charles really kind of broken down, assuring himself that he believes he's been a good person, but doesn't understand why he feels as though he's being punished. Like I said, Charles has helped many people throughout the season's episodes, and, and there are times, of course, he mentions scriptures or God in general, but this feels like the first time where he's really not sure what to do in regards to his faith. And well, let's finally get to rating this episode. In talking about it, I definitely have had my feelings adjusted back and forth a little bit. As a family story, it seemed off-centered. The family just survived a tornado, so why do we spend most of the episode with Charles and Mary with a little bit of Laura and a stocked version of Caroline? Caroline came out of that sod house as well. She saw the devastation, upset that we never really get to know her feelings. I mean, why not give her a scene where she lists the pros and cons of living in the big woods versus living on the prairie? Give her something. I almost hate to say it. Underutilized and undervalued. Also, a story with children moving away, there's many different kinds of stories that can happen. I mean, look at Mary's. And although Laura was the catalyst that helped convince Charles at the end of the episode to not move, that's really all she does in the episode, other than getting that lesson on how to pray. And then I'm left with my own thoughts in this prairie verse, if Matthew and Anna Sims are some sort of divine intervention or ghost trying to keep them in the area. So that did add a little bit of fun to the episode. So as season three opens, we better still have some sort of connection between Mary and John Jr. or else this episode was really lackluster. So that's why we are going to give Going Home a four bonnet rating. Yeah, just kind of not impressed with it being the final episode of the season. But now that we have our final rating, Let's get to our overall Season 2 Bonnet Rating. And, well, again, looking through that spreadsheet and doing all the math, 
Season 2 of Little House on the Prairie, as according to From Plum Creek with Love, has a four bonnets rating. Technically 4.0119 and further on, which is a quarter difference from season one's bonnet rating of four and a quarter. Now, I do recall complaining quite a bit about time continuity or just time representation in the Prairie Verse, so I do imagine that that is one of the contributing factors for this rating in itself. We had an episode about a baseball game followed by back-to-back episodes with get-rich-quick plans. Yes, I had to practice that and an episode about a mean teacher. Season two had a number of really good gems, but all in all, it's newness, and compared to season one, is a little thinner this time, so I guess I've just been a little bit more critical because of that. And just like at the end of season one, we are going to hand out our awards. To get things started, favorite new word, or old time word, which oddly enough, this season didn't use as many as season one. Although we were introduced to words like crinolines and pastilles and that bread poultice, favorite old time word is gully washers. A short and heavy rainstorm, which seems appropriate for the Pacific Northwest, minus the short part, however. Next up is our best use of food. And at first I was thinking, of course, Caroline's pies being pulled away by Mrs. Foster and Reverend Alden as she's suffering from a potentially lethal infection. But looking back at my notes, there was another really strong contender. And surprise, it goes to the Sleepy Eye, Green Stockings, and the Walnut Grove M's. You know, when they had the big brawl at the end and Charles got thrown over the concession stand and the food went flying everywhere. Two times? Memories. Next up is Best Action Scene. And there was a long time where the front runner was Mr. Edwards and his own bear attack. And yes, that baseball brawl was once again in for consideration. However, along came a runaway caboose. And Charles on his horse had to chase down a train heading directly for it. That entire scene from horse to the train, through the cars, over the freight cars, the fight in the engine, awesome. From there we move on to cringiest moment. And no, it's not anything that Carl Sanderson says in the Runaway Caboose episode, nor is it Laura's secrets being projected from the phonograph in the Talking Machine episode. No, this season's cringiest moment goes to Carl's Ingalls' stand-up routine in the spring dance. You know, the joke about baseball being in the Bible and what time of day Adam was born. Let's not even forget, although not in this episode, his joke about if you can't get a board, get a plank. Moving on from there, we are saying hello to best couple. And yes, we have our standard pairing off of people. And to be honest, it does feel a little strange saying Ebenezer and Laura are best couple. That's why season two's best couple is big sister Mary and her boyfriend. No, not John Jr., her other boyfriend. You know, homework. Mary and her homework did take quite a bit of notice in this season. No matter what sort of difficulties Mary went through in this season, homework was always there for her. It's because of homework it was discovered that Mary needed glasses. Because of homework and being a good student, Mary was awarded the opportunity 
to be a mathlete and represent Walnut Grove up in Minneapolis. And any time Mary was mentioned to be working for Mrs. Whipple, it was always decided Laura would do her chores so Mary could continue on with her homework. Because of homework, the Ingalls family with the Olsons went out on a nice camping trip. So, homework and Mary, beautiful couple. All right, that bear attack did come out of nowhere. So you'd think it would be an easy candidate for the WTF moment of the season. Heck, Granville's Civil War trauma was even a strong contender here. However, it should go without saying that season two's WTF moment goes to the opening scene of Remember Me. You know, the part where the man filled up that bag of puppies with some stones and threw it in the pond? Yep, that scene lives rent-free in my brain. Moving on from that, let's head into Best Dress. And of course, just like last time, we will have the male and female category. And, well, once again, we're really limited on multiple fashion choices for these gentlemen, other than Charles, and possibly Mr. Olson. So, this is open up for really any male character who has been in an episode. So, for Best Dressed Male, the award goes to Henry Hill's Red Shirt. I mean, the entire outfit in general, but other than Mr. Edwards' red flannel, which again is a mix of colors, Henry Hill's shirt seems just like a nice solid red, and it's not a color that I think we've seen in a you know solid outfit on a gentleman in the series so far. And moving on to best dressed female, we had a few contenders this season. The Widow Thurman proved that she can wear the emerald green. And in Soldier's Return, Mrs. Whipple proved she is the town seamstress. And I did want to give it to someone local. However, Minerva Farnsworth takes it for the win. She is dressed to impress as she comes into town to inquire about adopting Alicia Sanderson. And we come to our MVP categories, which is broken up into three separate categories. Category one being guest stars in a single episode. And season two actually offered quite a number of guest stars. We had the awful Mr. Applewood, the replacement teacher everyone loved to hate, and the wonderful Julia Sanderson used her voice to invoke some tears, for sure. And then even Yuli Pietkov, who after losing everything, is okay with that. But no, season two's MVP for guest star goes to Granville Whipple. I guess it's a posthumous award. The entire episode of Soldier's Return Whenever he was on screen, my attention was to him. And not the same way that I pay attention to Charles Ingalls when he's on the screen. With Granville Whipple, we got that story arc of him coming back, trying to redeem himself, slowly losing himself, and then actually losing himself. And yeah, it's, it's a hard episode. But I felt concerned for Granville Whipple. And now our MVP for supporting cast member. And it does feel as though we have seen more of Harriet and Mr. Olson, as well as more of Reverend Alden. However, I don't feel as though we have seen that much of Doc Baker or Miss Beetle. But that's okay, because supporting cast MVP goes to Mr. Edwards to showing us how to make our own baseball mitt, to finally getting the courage to ask Grace Snyder to the dance, as well as eventually asking and marrying her and becoming the father of three, 
transporting explosive oil, traveling cross-country by horseback to help stop a train, and surviving a bear attack, and most importantly, finally learning how to read. Mr. Edwards has grown up a lot in this season, so congratulations. And so that leads us to MVP main cast, which of course we have four major candidates for this. And as they say, it's best when you keep it in the family. However, that doesn't mean you have to share it with the family. And that's why for the second year, MVP to main cast goes to Big Sister Mary. I know I mention every time Charles Ingalls cries, but Mary, Mary can deliver as well. Her tearful confession of how she intentionally misplaced her glasses in the episode Four Eyes, ugh. Her eyes wide open experience and expressions as she heads on that train to Minneapolis for her mathlete competition. And not to mention her tearful return upon that, where all she felt was guilty for not winning. Plotting with her sister when she thinks her dad is getting taken away by the widow's web. And lastly, this new side of Mary, who after having her first kiss, has said I love you to possibly her first boyfriend. Oh, and how can I possibly forget Mary's also the first to deliver on camera an actual eye roll. Big Sister Mary, you're big time awesome. And with that, we do come to the end of our episode. And as I've already said many times throughout the podcast, the end of season two of Little House on the Prairie. And those are just some of my thoughts and feelings about this episode. And I would like to hear any thoughts or feelings you have about this episode, any previous episode, or in this case, any previous seasons. You can always reach out to me at from Plum Creek with love at the Gmail and Instagram account. With that, the Spotify playlist for season two is now also complete. So enjoy that if you've been listening to it or check it out if you haven't even heard it yet. And as I've said a few times, this will be our last podcast for 2021. So do make sure you've hit your subscribe, like, following button on whatever platform you're using. That way, when the new episode is available, of course, you'll get that notification. And with that, we come to the end of another episode of From Plum Creek with Love, a little house on the prairie podcast. I'm your host, John Hernandez. And until next time, enjoy the season, happy new year, and take care.